Hello, uh, welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, so we're still working on Lovecraft's uh, letters, specifically the second volume of the Selected Letters. Um, and we're into, uh, I think the last episode was kind of light on really powerfully interesting letters. Um, you know, it's a lot, a lot more mundane stuff, a lot of short letters. Uh, that's not true this time. I think here we're kind of getting into some more meaty material in these. Uh, these letters that I'm going to look at today, again, I'm going to cover 20 of them, um, cover the period February 1927 to June 1927. And um, yeah, I think there's a lot to talk about here in these. Um, so let's just jump right into them and see what we have. Um, so the first one we have is to Donald Wandry. I don't know if I don't remember if this is the first he wrote to, or the first we have in this collection to Donald Wandry, um, but he'd been talking about him a lot to other people and suggesting people read him and 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 introducing him to other people. Um, but this one has him really talking to him a lot, quite a lot about New York City and and he's you know he left New York City a while ago you know a year earlier, but it's still very much on his mind and he reflects a lot on. On New York, and specifically in this letter, the relationship between New York and literature. Um, you know, I, I think in some ways, when you look at like 1920s literature, it's it's very easy to kind of fall into this urban rule disconnect. You know how, I mean, I think that's kind of part of the culture wars of the 20s in general. You know, certainly you have writers like F. Scott Fitzgerald. You know, kind of New York writers, urban writers, anyways, and 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 the you know, the rest of America, kind of the flyover country part of America gets gets sort of neglected. Um, and Lovecraft here really doubts New York can be a literary capital. Um, now, he starts out saying, yeah, you really got to choose settings you know to write. Um, and he ultimately concludes you really can't know New York. New York doesn't have a center, if it ever did. I think he, I think he believes it once did, but New York's changed so much. It's become this immigrant city. And therefore, he thinks you really can't know it anymore. He writes, this would really exclude any such cosmopolitan chaos as New York, which is no central identity or meaning and no clear cut relationship either to its own past or anything else in particular. But of course, I realize that different minds have different requirements, end quote. So it's a little bit liberal on this point. But but, you know, if you look at his own story, his New York story, he there's others, you know, horror at Red Hook. Too, but he is in particular kind of making this case that New York sort of lost its its past and its relationship to the past. Um, and basically, he concludes that that New York is dead. And again, that's the thesis of of he. I, I think we'll we'll look at that story soon enough. Um, he he writes, "No, New York is dead, and the brilliancy which so impressed one from the outside is the phosphorescence of a maggoty corpse." There can be no normal American life or thought in a town full of twisted rat-like vermin from the ghetto and steerage of yesterday. A town where for block on block one can walk without seeing a single face which has any relation to the life and growth of the Nordic Anglo-American stream of civilization. It is not America, it's not even Europe. It is Asia and chaos and hell. It's sort of sinking, amorphous hybridism which Juvenal noted in Rome. So, yeah, these aren't nice things to say. We know his opinion of New York is not very um, pleasant. But I think going beyond, like, the straight-up rants about New York City, this letter does a little bit more in that it kind of comments on that, you know, what that means for the writer and literature. You know, I guess my response to Lovecraft on this point would be, what about the writers who are of that cosmopolitan you know, society. Certainly there are writers that come out of that context and can speak to it. Um, I did a whole series very, very early on in this this podcast, I think in the first year on the Harlem Renaissance. And most of those novels were set in New York or adjacent to that great migration experience. And this leads him to then say, well, he needed personally. Again, I think there's some liberal liberality in his comments here. He's saying like, for me, but for him, he had to go back to Providence. And this gets to this issue of provincialism versus cosmopolitanism. And he prefers the provincialism for his own own writing. And he may, again, he admits that this is his perspective, not necessarily a universal one. 
Um, and from there, he gets into a little bit of his own family history, contextualizing this point about the need for his provincial um, uh, kind of context. Jumps into a little bit of architectural history as well. Again, using the terms like a Georgian town, really, which an 18th century town. That's his century, obviously. And overall, I think, you know, his own sensitivity to place. I think that's that's true. I think that's we may not agree with his opinion about New York City or how he wrote it or characterized it. But it's true. We all have our own sensitivity to place and there's we all have our places we're comfortable and writers have their own geography, their mental geography that they they draw from. That's that's true of uh, of writers throughout history. I think you know some maybe are able to transcend it, but most most don't. Most really are sensitive to a certain place and and to a degree a certain type of of people. Um, yeah, he says like it's it's places he's sensitive to. Now his criticism of New York is not really one of place so much, but of people. But so I don't know if that distinction is as strong as he wants to make it. But there it is. This is a really interesting letter. I think it's an important one to kind of look at. Um, and it actually has more of interesting things to say than I think the entire last, last episode offers us. So, yeah, check out this letter if you, if you get the chance and you want to get maybe a little bit more thoughtful approach to his, to his New York rants. Now, he kind of continues this theme in the next letter we have here, which was dated February 18th, 1927. This one's to Clark Ashton Smith. Um, and we've already seen how he'll write on similar themes to different people at the same time because it's, it's in his head. It's, it's you know, it's, uh, it's there in his mind. So he'll kind of take different approaches to it to different people. Uh, here he also talks about a little bit more on New York and this cosmopolitanism of New York. Um, he says it can breed a critical spirit but never art. Uh, and, you know, that's a direct quote. I, I don't know if that's true, but he, again, I think... It's a different art. It's 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 a type of art. I think Clark Ashton Smith's art is more cosmopolitan. I think Pinkman's, you know, art is a little bit more cosmopolitan in a way. But anyways, he says the art grows out of solitude and communion with one's own past and background. That that may be true in the fact that many artists do connect to their own past and their place. But I don't I, I don't know I I don't know if you need this nationalistic approach to art. He actually calls it nationalistic at this point nativistic and nationalistic he kind of embraces these these terms that maybe are kind of uh, not as popular today to embrace i mean few people would i guess fewer people now than in you know a century ago would claim to be nationalists so proudly and and this is his own experience though this is based on his own experience of feeling kind of out of place in new york and not getting much work done not getting much writing done so it's drawn from some truth anyways. Um, yeah, it's kind of just builds off the same stuff. Uh, he talks a little bit here about uh, a poet, Sterling. I'm not really that familiar with. Um, yeah, but anything. Anyways, the stuff on New York is better here in this particular letter or more useful. Talks a little bit about childhood, right? Or, or the need to connect to kind of our childhood uh, place. That's not, that's a kind of a luxury though. Lovecraft certainly wasn't a character with a lot of privilege, but it is a bit privileged to be able to, to stay, to keep that physical connection to one childhood's home, especially in this global era we, we live in. So these kind of go together, I, I think, these two letters in, in kind of being part of the overall providence new york conversation that's very much on his mind in this time of his life um he kind of comes at the same question in in the next letter dated february 20th 1927 to derleth to august derleth where he makes an interesting point here about like catholicism and, and by extension episcopalianism um having some kind of deeper connection to the past and therefore being a, a better connection to to art um he's of course not religious um, but he thinks that there's something like Protestantism is, it, you know, has, it breaks ones from the past a little bit too much. He, of course, is of Protestant ancestry, but he, he says Catholicism is really an admirable faith for those artists whose taste is wholly Gothic and mystical without any mixture of the classic or the intellectual. And, and that, there might be some something to that in, you know, if we kind of look at it from Lovecraft's viewpoint that 
that there is that long tradition in Catholicism that wasn't kind of ruptured and a little bit maybe more openness to magic a little bit more openness to to God being active like in things like the sacraments like not all the Protestants but many kind of disconnected miracles from from the sacraments made them more symbolic um, Catholic Catholics didn't do that and the Episcopals of course is in a kind of a a little bit less Protestant in a lot of ways than than other Protestant um, schools um, so he kind of thinks they also have their own their own root um, quote it seems to me that if one is to have anything so extra rational as religion of any sort that the Catholic and Episcopal systems are the only two sects with enough roots and anchors in the past to make them worthy of the affiliation of an artist the life which they express is the natural simple life of elder times before the spread of industrialism and then this comment allows him to kind of extend to break into his his discourse his his uh, common commentary on machine culture. I think it's one of, uh, it's something I'm still kind of grappling with as I'm reading his letters and thinking more about is his criticism of, of modernity and his criticism particularly of what he calls machine culture. Now, he certainly thinks the future of human civilization is mechanical, is mechanistic. Um, quote, mechanical invention Oh, where the future civilization, quote, the future civilization of mechanical invention, urban concentration and scientific standardization of life and thought is a monstrous and artificial thing which can never find embodiment either in art or in religion. And basically, as a result of this, art's going to to hell in a handbasket, as he doesn't say use those words, but that, that's obviously what he thinks here about it. So, um, yeah, all these letters kind of fit together nicely. Um, next one we have is to Bernard Austin Dwyer. These letters to Dwyer are always interesting, and this one is no exception. It's a relatively lengthy one. There's a lot going on in it. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's like eight pages or so, and that's just the edited down version we're, we're given here. He talks a little bit about working on Pickman's model. That's, that I, that I kind of characterize as another one of his New York stories, along with Call of Cthulhu and He and the Horror at Red Hook. Works that seem influenced geographically, culturally, spiritually, in some way to New York. So, you know, I call a little bit of bullshit on his idea that no art comes out of New York when he obviously wrote stories that are pretty good coming out of New York. Um, but, you know, he doesn't really admit that. He, he talks instead about how, like, he's really influenced by the horrific art imagery, right? Um, and that, that was popular at the time and growing, uh, you know, the, the different kind of new artistic schools that emerged in the aftermath of World War One. You know, again, I, I urge you to read uh, Scott Poole's book, Wastelands. It's a pretty new book, but it's great. It's on uh, culture, uh, the impact of the Great War on culture, including art, but also film and, and literature. And he makes this point about how there's greater experimentation just in the art, artist, artist, art of the grotesque as people come to, came to terms with just the brutality of the war. Um, he talks a little bit to Dwyer about some of the things he's working on. Uh, so that's, that might be interesting to people who want to trace his, his career. Um, he ponders a little bit some of the influences on some of his, his ideas. Um, now, really important to me here is comments he gives on stories like The White Ship. He doesn't say much about The White Ship that I've come across, and I, I really like that tale. I think it's it's one of his more interesting dreamland stories. Uh, I always like Herman Melville's Marty, and the white ship kind of feels like a, a, a version of Marty in, in like small form. Someone trying to search for the ideal society, never able to be able to find it. And this kind of constant search for that, that perfect world. Um, he talks about that a little bit. He talks about the case of Charles Dexter Ward, which he, he wrote, but had not been published by this point. Talks about uh, supernatural horror and literature, uh, the shunned house, and the statement of Randolph Carter. All these different stories that he wrote at various times in his career, and, and some of the things that influenced him in the writing of these, including, you know, the statement of Randolph Carter, who came from his dream. I don't know if this is the first time he mentions that directly, but you know, I, I talked about that when we looked at that story way back earlier on in this podcast. In fact, much of this letter is about his own kind of 
intellectual upbringing and his background, his early interest in science, his juvenile education, um, his interest in geography. And I, I think, you know, science, geography are so key to understanding Lovecraft. I think the more and more I think about it, actually, I think his stories need to be studied with a kind of a geographical eye, not just the ones that are clearly global in scale, like Call of Cthulhu, um, but many others that maybe aren't so global are still really tied to place or even urban geography, as in like the case of Charles Dexter Ward, uh, you know, Kingsport, uh, places like this, that, that there are places with distinctive identities throughout the world that, that Lovecraft's kind of creating here. Uh, you know, so people make so much of like the, this Cthulhu mythos that's obviously invented by Derleth, not Lovecraft himself, but you know, the connections, he is creating a geography, he is creating kind of a secondary world, his own kind of inverted version of, of New York. He also mentions in this letter the origins of his own skepticism and his political conservatism, um, ultimately concluding in his own, you know, his own aesthetic tastes and his feeling for literature and his de detestation of, of romanticism. Uh, a long letter, an important letter that shows Lovecraft thinking about, writing about, and meditating on his own uh, work. Um, very, very powerful one. So this is, this is another one I, I would really set up to say, you know, kind of as one of his must, your must reads if you want to use his letters to get a window into, into Lovecraft. I think there's some insights here that he confesses about the origin of some of his stories, um, as well as his, his deeper um, intellectual upbringing, his interest in chemistry, his interest in astronomy, and all these things. It's a relatively long letter, though, um, and very autobiographical, but very, very um, important. Uh, next, uh, not much to say here. This is Clark Ashton Smith, March 15th. It's just about Wandry's article being accepted by Weird Tales. Um, obviously, Lovecraft had no say in that. He, he knew the editor of Weird Tales, and he was certainly aware of the stuff that was being published. And he maybe heard from Wandry in that previous letter I mentioned that this had been been published. I'm not sure. Obviously, we don't get the letters to Lovecraft in this particular collection the way we do in some other um, wonderful collections of his of his letters. Just a few lines here to Clark Ashton Smith. Really, just an excerpt of a, of a longer letter. Um, the next one's much the same. Uh, a, f a week later, or so March 24th. To Clark Ashton Smith, and this is uh, his announcement to his friend that he's finished Color Out of Space. Um, a little bit about the publication of the Shunned House. So just some notes about his own, you know, what what's coming out soon to his to his buddy. All right, next we have a March twenty seventh letter to Bernard Austin Dwyer again. I guess it's the reply to. The reply to Lovecraft's letter from March 3rd, um, the, the, the time suggests that, that that's what he's doing. Uh, again, we don't have those those letters to know for sure, um, but I think it's a fair guess that he's responding to whatever Dwyer wrote. Uh, much more, also very autobiographical. It's also Lovecraft talk, talking about his own experiences and, and feelings. This one, though, is much more focused on his Brooklyn experiences and it's a really good one. I think this letter, again, it's a really good window into his views about New York. And it's very personal. It talks about his own experience with his neighbors, crime, his feelings about the settlement's house, but even the sounds, the faces, etc. of New York. And I'll read you some quotes of this, but um, it's, a, it's a very racist letter, like, like several of his talking about New York are. Um, but I think this, like the other Dwyer letter, is one that you probably have to grapple with. Uh, to, to kind of, uh, as we think about Lovecraft's attitudes to, to New York. Maybe it's a bit repetitive at this point. I apologize for that, but, but each letter sort of adds a little bit more. It's like another piece of the, of the picture. Um, he even talks, about, but this one is also very personal. If you want like the biography of Lovecraft, like what he was doing in New York, what his feelings were day to day, this is a good letter to look at. Uh, he talks about experiencing the decline of the neighborhood. He talks about his landlord his housekeeper, the overall life in Red Hook, which he obviously didn't think much of. And he even talks about just like the sounds he hears living in this, this apartment in Red Hook. Quote, 
to quote him, voices came from the next room, and what voices? Of course, poor Mrs. Burns apologized for those particular rumors of which she said she was very anxious to get rid. But when I began to see some of the other anthropological types in the hallway, my cynicism began to mount. Friends who came to see me, better versed in Brooklyn than I, uh, than I, for my metropolitan residence had been confined to the quiet section of Flatbush, were quicker than I to see and tell me what a wretched hole I had crawled into. But by the time it was all settled, I had with my desperate finances, the idea of removal, the idea of removal was quite impossible. Um, yeah, and this letter goes on a lot about the, the smells, the faces, the, 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 just the sounds and all that. And the people, the people here, the Syrians, the different ethnic minorities that, that dwelled in not only Red Hook, but even the building he, he lived in. Great stuff here about that, that really kind of gets to the heart of his just anxiety and discontent about anyone who wasn't like, you know, very Anglo-American. It's, you know, or anyone who's kind of suspicious. That's the term I keep thinking of, like suspicious persons hovering around. He's, he's probably misinterpreting most of these people's intentions, but, uh, but he kind of gives it a horror, which is kind of fascinating. He, he only, it's almost like I, I re when I read this letter before, I almost thought, is he, is he trying to create a horror scene? Is he trying to horrify Red Hook in a way? I mean, it's, it's how you would talk about a creepy neighborhood in, in like a horror novel or, or the way you would present it maybe in a horror film. Quote, every closed door seemed to hide some brooding crime or blasphemy too deep to form a crime in the crude and superficial calendar of Earth. I never quite learned the exact topography of that rambling and enormous house, how to get to my room, to Kirk's room when he was there, or to the landlord's quarters to pay rent or ask in vain for heat until I brought a, bought an oil stove of my own. These things I knew, but there were wings and corridors I never trans, transversed. Doors to rear and abutting halls and stairwells that I never saw opened. Wow, great stuff. But he really does do a good job here pre presenting Red Hook, his own building, his own neighborhood, as a source of, of, of horror. Now, after doing all this, he talked a little bit about Christianity and art. And, and we've already seen him recently commenting on Christianity and art kind of having a preference for Catholicism. Um, but I, I'm guessing if maybe Dwyer wrote to him something like, well, you talk so much about science influencing you, but what about religion? Um, and he says, well, we know well after a moment of scientific reflection that any attempt at enforcing the actual fantastic and idealistic precepts of Christ would lead at once to utter anarchy, collapse, and cultural extinction. However, I'm well aware that anyone else of the enormous extent to which the Christian tradition is now woven into our lives, art, and literature after 1,300 and more years of continuous profession by our mainstream of civilization. Like it or not, the general forms are fixed upon us. The, the importance here being his own atheism, his own scientism, his own kind of uh, modern looking at his own kind of strange take on modernity. He's a very modern thinker, uh, but... At the same time, he has that kind of disgust for modernity. But he, you know, at the same time, mysticism, magic, Christ, religion is so part, so much part of the Western tradition that if you're of Lovecraft's view that art must be built on this cultural foundation going way back, you have to grapple with, with Christianity. And, and he, he does that here. And I, and I think in his own work, he doesn't really center Christianity. He centers instead other occult, other traditions like occult traditions vernacular networks of knowledge witches these other things that are kind of christianity adjacent maybe right like horror at red hook you have lilith right um a lot of his stories seem to hover around that the rituals of the cultists right there's kind of a, a christian motifs in that stuff you know even in the sense of sacrifice maybe so it's 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 a very interesting reflection on Christianity's impact on art. And I think it's him grappling with this, a bit of a contradiction maybe in his own worldview and his own realization that, that anything coming out of this Anglo-American tradition must be to some degree Christian. Uh, the rest of the letter then just talks about some of his own writing and some of his more recent publications. So all in all, another really, I think, relevant and significant letter that's, that's um, worth checking out. I think it's a, it's a good one. I think especially the way he talks about Red Hook as a 
as a, a zone of a horror experience, I think. I, and I wonder if he's overplaying his hand here in the sense of allowing his imagination to, to, to make it more horrible than it really, really was. Cause he, you know, you know, he doesn't, in the letters from New York, we don't get quite this kind of tone about, about Red Hook and the places he lived. Maybe he had to leave to reflect on it, but I, I wonder if, you know, this happens to everyone, right? When they leave a place and they think about it, they emphasize certain things, they downplay other things. They'll, they kind of make it part of their own personal mythology. All right. Uh, moving on. Next, uh, written just two days after this Dwyer letter. No, the same day as the Dwyer letter uh, to August Derleth, March 26th. Uh, so this one is mostly about, at least the relevant portions we have here, about Oswald Spengler, The Decline of the West, a book he read and thought a lot about and talked a lot about with his friends. Um, he kind of summarizes it. Quote, you will find there much sound and bitter sense regarding the slackening of the cultural fiber of the dominant Aryan race during the last century or less. The normal evolution of the human stock presupposes a certain amount of struggle with nature and with enemies in which the weak and inferior will be unable to survive and will disappear in sufficient quantities to prevent exhaustion of food supplies and to ensure the perputation of the species through its abler and more vigorous specimens. You know, that's, that's him, him interpreting and, and synthesizing Spengler. I haven't actually read Spengler. I, I probably should. Uh, then he gets into eugenics. Um, and it's interesting. He's got kind of a social Darwinian idea, but I don't think he's got a eugenical view. I mean, because the social Darwinian view is kind of you just let nature take its course, right? You let the weak die. Um, and maybe some of that is in eugenics thoughts, but eugenics is a little bit more active than I think what Lovecraft wants here. Um, eugenics, you know, says let's promote birth control and some populations promote births than others. He thinks though that peace and birth control, both things. So, so peace in the sense of the social Darwinian advoca advocating for a society of war, a society in conflict as a, as a way of kind of improving the race. He thinks that's good, but I don't think he seems to support eugenics as a, really as a program, even if he sees maybe it might be a little bit necessary. He's, he's a bit of, two-faced here and how he talks about eugenics but i don't get the sense he's a true eugenicist like someone who says like we should actually you know at least not a really hard eugenicist who says we really should allow only certain people to to breed let others die out that way he's he's more in a general sense social darwinian here he does say though that birth control has become a grim and absolute necessity since the industrialization of the social order has made it absolutely impossible to rear a large family in comfortable and enlightened manner. So his advocate, advocacy of, of birth control is not based on, on eugenics so much as it's based on just the realities of, of urban life, right? And, and there's truth to that, right? We see in urban civilizations, birth rates go down, right? Children become less a benefit. They're not working on the farm. They're, they're less a financial benefit. They're just more of a burden. They're just a cost that that has to you know has to be raised, and especially for non wealthy people, you know, birth control becomes a necessity of of their life. He's certainly not a religious opponent of birth control. He just doesn't seem to be a, a pure eugenicist here. Uh, all right, um, another good letter, another important letter, anyways. Uh, next, uh, another letter to Donald Wandry. This one, March 27th, 1927. Um, not too much here to, to talk about. Uh, it's a, it's, our selection here is pretty short. He mostly introduces Wandry to his own kind of circle of friends and, and other fiction writers, you know, and, you know, kind of doing his matchmaking that he's done before. So he mentions Durleth, Dwyer, Loveman, some of his other friends. You know, and other people just love fiction, love the same kind of stuff as Lovecraft. And it kind of encourages them to get in contact. He does, though, talk about his own cynicism towards humanity, which is, I think, well documented. Next, uh, James F. Morton, April 1st, 1927. Um, I think this is another important letter. Uh, the Morton ones are always good. Th this one's dated April Fool's Day, actually. Um, 
Now, there's some personal stuff first in this letter, like his feelings about cold weather, this kind of the strangeness he feels in cold weather. There's other letters where he complains about the cold. It's 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 not it's not that uncommon here. Um, but I think the interesting thing is he 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 had finished supernatural horror and literature. He's finished this long essay on weird fiction, and he he expresses the need and maybe desire to to um, to expand the weird fiction article. So as we've seen, he ha- while he's been writing this article, he's been reading a lot, and he's been reading a lot of people for the first time. And, and learning about their contribution to weird fiction. And he's saying, like, maybe there's a lot more to say. There's actually more that he's learned than he was able to fit into the article. And he says, maybe this should be expanded. I, I think at this point, it'll only be expanded into, like, a whole book, a whole survey, a whole book-length survey of, of weird fiction. Obviously, he doesn't do that, but it's, it's perhaps a pity. I don't know. We'll, we'll look at supernatural horror and literature soon enough. Um. But I think what's really crucial here is he contrasts the Elizabethan with the Georgian period. He, you know, he associates these historical periods with these English kings and monarchs. Um, he doesn't hate the Elizabethan period. It's just not his, he's the Georgian, right? He's the 18th century person. Um, so, but what he doesn't like is this Victorian era and he doesn't see much hope in the Victorian. Uh, ho- he only has some hope maybe that in a post-Victorian era, maybe they'll go back to some kind of Georgian um, concepts and, and, and ideas. He writes, for instance, the Victorian age lacked in force, sincerity, and decorative perception what it gained in manners and conceptions of life as a fine art. If I could create an ideal world, it would be in England with the fire of the Elizabethans, the correct taste of the Georgians, and the refinement and pure ideals of the Victorians. For the post-Victorian age, I see little hope. There is indeed a return to Georgian decorative conceptions, but it's imitative. So maybe not so much hope for a return, but uh, uh, maybe a, a, a squinting hope that that there might be a, a some something after the Victorian age that's that will inspire him in a way the the 18th century has. All right, as I as I said, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in this this particular set of letters. Um, Mostly they're good. Mostly they're they're relevant. A few a few throwaway ones, but by and large, good stuff here. All right, next, Vic Vincent Starrett. I don't know who this is, to be honest. Doesn't matter. It's a short letter, um, but it's dated April eleventh, nineteen twenty-seven. Uh, this is just kind of business. It's about the declining market for weird fiction, and you know that's something he complains about and worries about throughout his career, especially this period. You know, that's just the way it is and he's kind of got his own kind of feeling of inadequacy towards the greats of weird fiction writing when i compare my results with dunsany de la mer macon bierce blackwood mr james or any other recognized master of the macabre i lose at once whatever tendency towards egoism or complacency i might otherwise acquire um, that's just his own humility towards these greats uh, next, we have a letter to Donald Wandry, uh, April 21st, 1927. This one gives Lovecraft a chance. In this letter, he's talk, he gets a chance to talk a little bit more about the materialistic universe, um, his own kind of philosophical skepticism. But most importantly, he connects this to his, his racial theories in, in kind of a, a subtle way. But... Um, you know, it's kind of one of those, if you, you blink, you miss it. But it's there. He writes, where is it? I insist on the, the artificial and traditional values of a particular cultural stream. Proximate values which grow out of the special instincts, associations, environments, and experience of the race in question. And which are the sole available criteria for the members of that race and culture. Though, of course, having no validity outside of it. So, you know, again, like there's this cultural heritage can only can only really be unlocked by people of that of that culture and and particularly in this way the way he, the way he words it of his race um, but there's more to this here and it's it's how he connects the materialistic indifferent universe his philosophical skepticism with his need for kind of a political conservatism 
right? That tradition then becomes the only thing that kind of holds us together and gives us some, some foundation. Quote, the backgrounds of tradition against which the skills and the, which, against which to scale the objects and events of experience are all that lend such objects and events the illusion of meaning, value, or dramatic interest in their ultimately purposeless cosmos. End quote. So he's admitting that there's an artificiality to these cultural traditions in, in, in kind of a cosmic sense, right? But it's all we have. We're humans. We're limited, right? And the only way we can make sense of this is through our cultural traditions. Um, so it's kind of a fiction. Um, it's, it's, but it's a, a survival strategy, right? It's like the, the caveman who sees the lightning and says it's the gods. And, and you know, that's all. That's the only way you can make sense of the universe is by giving it some kind of meaning that way. And it might be false, it might not be true, but it's something that, that he can rest on. Um, much of the rest of the letter then goes into colonial history, New England colonial history, architecture, and, and some of his, his own love of, of architecture. Um, he writes about that a lot, obviously. And he admits something else here, which is kind of striking, is that there is kind of an un, a non-Promethean risk. There's a risk to kind of fall into paralysis if one kind of lives too much in the past and lives one too much in these kind of dreams of the ancient cities. So he, he's kind of giving some fine tune, I think, to some of his philosophical perspectives here. He writes, it is so perfectly and utterly a life of dream that, leads, that it leads to an almost oriental inaction. That, that's racist, the way he says it kind of associating the East with inaction and permanency and cultural permanency. But, that, you know, that's a common view at the time, right? The, the eternal Orient, the eternal Chinese or whatever. If you ignore that, what he's really saying is he, he's kind of at risk of his own kind of ennui. I think there's, a ref, you know, his own kind of professional frustrations at this, at this time, which he talks about in other letters, his feeling that he's inadequate towards the masters, his feeling that, he really can't write anymore. The feeling of the wasted time in New York. His, his frustrations over the changing taste for weird fiction and the market for weird fiction. And this is kind of leading him to this. Um, quote, spring comes and I resolve to go out and drench my soul in high sunning fields and wake, waking woods in far incredible cities. I resolve, I call up those fields and woods and cities in my fancy and lo, I've seen and experienced them. So I do not go out in bodily re reality after all. It's with the same with writing in many instances, end quote. So another interesting uh, letter. Next, uh, Clark Ashton Smith, May 12th, 1927. This is just more business. Uh, he gives him a copy of The Color Out of Space. A great story, by the way. Lovecraft thought it was his best. It really is one of his bests. Um, I look forward to talking about The Color Out of Space in a future episode. Um, he talks about how he added the stuff on chambers to the supernatural horror in literature. This is actually a kind of famous quote here where, you know, because Chambers was known, I think, for writing kind of sentimental romance fiction and things. But he wrote The Yellow Sign, which most people remember him now as the author of The Yellow Sign, the Haster stuff, the King in Yellow. But when he came across Chambers for writing this article, he was like, wow, Chambers wrote this. That's kind of wild. And he, he writes... Uh, you know, he added some stuff, quote, mainly regarding the forgotten early works of Robert W. Chambers. Can you believe it? Who turned out some powerfully bizarre stuff between 1895 and 1904. Um, so kind of an important letter just for that quote, just for that commentary on, on, um, on Chambers. You know, the yellow sign stuff is good. You should, you should read it if you, get, if you ever get the chance. Um, next, we've got a short little fragment to, uh, of a letter to uh, Donald Wandry, uh, just about cosmic horror. Uh, but he's got, you know, it's not much to say here, but he's got a great quote here about cosmic horror. It says, uh, I've often wished that I had the literary power to call up visions from some vast and remote realm of, in, enti of, in, of entity beyond the universe of matter and energy. But he just uh, is kind of despairing that he's not able to really pull that off. 
Uh, next, uh, James F. Morton, uh, May 19th, 1927. Uh, there's some kind of nasty racist stuff in this letter, if you're interested in that. Um, part of Lovecraft's thinking. Um, he, he's kind of talking about how he gets some income from some land he owns, some small kind of rental income he gets. But he's kind of complaining that the region's kind of going, going to hell. Writing, when I lead a party thither, I shall have the assumed air of an old squire making the rounds of the tenantry. It's kind of like him imagining being the old aristocrats of, 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 of uh, old. Quote, I have never been near the damn places yet and haven't got the remotest idea of what it's like, except I know all the region has gone Guinea. End quote. So referring to the rising population of black people, I presume. Um, and then a little bit about his experiences with heat and, and cold. More complaining about the weather, which is uh, not fully uncommon for, for Lovecraft. Um, next, again, to James Morton. This one is dated just four or five days later. Uh, to... Uh, What's this one about? This is about his dentist. This is personal stuff. This is about his dental bill, his expensive dentist bill, $36, which he really can't afford. Um, and I was working on a revision at the time. I'm not sure which revision he's, he's thinking of here. But anyways, he's working on something. He's working on one of his revisions. Um, next, James Morton again. This one actually just one day later. Kind of a follow-up letter uh, where it just talks about some science stuff. Yeah, that's all. Won't say too much about it because the next letter is we're back to Dwyer. Actually, we have three really good letters to Dwyer in this this selection, all of which are, are relevant and important to read. And this one certainly is one of them. Uh, this one's dated just June 1927, and it's another long one. Um, I think it's the longest we have here, like over 10 pages. Um, and it covers all sorts of issues. Uh, really, the centerpiece of this is a conversation about migration and, and culture. Um, but really what's happening is like the craft. So, you know, he's talking about what does it mean to be in the machine age, right? What is what's its foundation, its material foundation? And and that is replacement of craft. Uh, Kind of craftsmanship is being replaced with mechanization and and industry and that's kind of associated with the rise of migration and the decline of culture as a result of that uh, now as for the migration part he kind of falls back to his old uh, classical imagery when talking about that seeing new york seeing the modern industrial um, society as, as affiliated with like Carthage or Alexandria. Um, quote, just as Alexandrian art was affected, superficial and pedantic, so is that of New York today. The old New York is dead and this hybrid mass of pravuna and traditionalist glitter has no relation whatever to the lives and dreams and aspirations of any one people or stream of culture. Um, again, I don't, I don't see why you need that. Why, why can't a diverse society create interesting culture? I, I think he's just kind of pulling out his hair at the changes in his in his in his world but he's not alone i mean many people you know grapple with with change especially profound cultural change but i think where it gets more interesting is when he starts to kind of move away from this ranting about immigrants to talking about actually what's the true problem of modern culture and, and for him it's the the death of craft here craftsmanship and local products are dead he writes no one man completely makes anything. So no one region subsists in any great extent on its products, end quote. So the, the, the point here is being in the industrial age, you don't have local identity anymore because, you know, you might have a few touristy craftspeople who kind of maintain certain traditions. But by and large, you lose out on, um, you lose out on the skill, the art, not just the intellectual art, not just writing and poetry, but actually the physical art, the, the, the craftsmanship of, of an era. Um, and so what's really cool about this letter is he kind of combines this, this mongrelization question that he goes on about with industry in really kind of fascinating ways, I think. Um, now, what does this mean then mean for art? 
because that's where his real goal is to say, well, what is the problem with modern art? And he just says it often becomes decadent and, and it becomes. Uh, now, here, I think he's a contradictory because he says it sometimes becomes regional, which is what he's saying. You really can't have anywhere. You lose that regional identity. But really, the problem is it becomes individual. When art just becomes one's individual reflection and ex exploration, you lose then universal art and you learn you lose the f art's potential to give universal messages. Um, but I wonder if he ever really thought art could have a universal message because he often says, you know, art is really tied to these cultural conditions. And, you know, like he sees himself as a Providence writer. He, I don't know if he ever talks to himself as a universal writer or user universal artist. He, you know, he, he stresses his regional identity so much. So I think there's a bit of a contradiction in his overall philosophy here, but that's fine. Um, there's uh, so but what does he write about the individualism in art? Why is that bad? And, and he says, quote, I think we'll have to admit that the sound art of the future will be either regional or individual, and that it's likely to diminish with the generations unless some unforeseen mental revolution intervenes to check the growth of an artificial and abnormally proportioned life. The universal art, such as it will be, will consist both of mediocre and meaningless decorative banalities and ultra-sophisticated design and mannered and overemphasized technique and of morbid and hectic attempts at expressing whatever of nature is left in life. Um, so, so after kind of making this argument that we're going to get a lack of universal art, we're going to get like primitive savage art and individualized art or like, you know, schlock stuff. Uh, he then kind of wanders on to a discussion about New England history. Um, and kind of goes back to an old theme he mentioned before, and that is like the damage done by the American Revolution to New England and to America as a whole. Um, and after this, and he goes back to the threat of modernity, specifically these joint threats, immigration, the, the global labor market, the migration of people across the seas and, and, and through railroads to different places where they lose their cultural roots. And then industry, which feeds that migration um, then he gives an exception he says well where can we find artists that understand this connection and he says well here you know an artist like Robert Frost he says as someone who understands the importance of the New England landscape and the New, New England land um, and then Lovecraft says like he himself his response to this has been more just become an antiquarian just reject modernity you know, and and embrace an earlier era and try to get to its spirit and, and try to get to its ideas and, and, ref, and, and ex, you know, explore that. So he kind of justifies his own antiquarianism as his resistance to this modern era. Uh, it's a very, really long letter. There's a lot going on in it. it it's, it's one you can read several times and I think get new insights into Lovecraft's mind the more you read it. I just I don't think he's very consistent on some of these criticisms of, of modernity and about the nature of art. I think he, he kind of falls into some traps. Like, I don't know, is he, because when he's talking about like Chinese versus like Anglo-American racial civilizations, he says, well, it's not that one is better than the other, although deep down he thinks there is. That's not the point. The point is they're just different. They're kind of incompatible and they both have their own roots. But then what's this thing about universal art? You know, who is that for? Is it is universal art really something that's only possible for the Anglo-American civilization? Right. He says there's nothing I can learn from Chinese civilization. He said that in other letters. So if there is a possibility for universal art, why, why couldn't this come out of any culture? Right. Maybe the modern era with its globalization makes this kind of goal of universal art more possible. And, and I don't know. But it's a good letter. An important one, but very, very long. Uh, next, we got a short fragment uh, to Clark Ashton Smith, dated June 3rd, where, which is basically about his financial troubles, his need for money, and his working on, on revisions. And then this gets us to the very last letter I want to talk about today, uh, which is uh, to Zelia Brown-Reed, June 5th, 1927. And often his letters to, uh, to Zelia Bishop Zelia Brown-Reed Bishop, uh, of course, he wrote revisions uh, for her, um, some big ones, some important ones. 
So he's talking with her about writing and he says there are good and bad reasons for writing. The bad reasons for writing uh, is income, boredom and, and what he calls like scribbles, like just and that's kind of it seems like another type of boredom. So these aren't good reasons to write. Um, and I think his, the big problem here is people who write for income. He's complained about those those before. Um, but ultimately, he thinks good motives, writing for the good motives at the same time isn't enough, right? Um, and, and he's got other kind of reflections on, on what it takes to be a good writer. I think there's some useful thoughts here about it. Uh, what makes... what what makes a good artist and what justifies a good artist? I think that's the key point. Like you, it's got to have the right motivation and without the right motivation, it doesn't matter how good you are. Right. But the right motivation isn't enough in itself. You can't just be well-meaning um, and, and, and that to, to produce good art in the end of the day. All right. I guess that's it. That's another 20 letters. Uh, good one. Like at least interesting ones. I have to say important, interesting letters in this, this set. Um, the next episode will will see me talking about the letters written. Let me find out from June 20, 1927 to October 1927. So a relatively short period of time, um, but I think we'll have some fun with them. I think there's some good stuff in here too. Hopefully, I won't be repeating myself too much. I think that's that's a risk with these letters, to be sure. I'll try not to. I'll try to say the most about stuff when I when I see Lovecraft kind of venturing into some new issues. So um, yeah, that's gonna be it for now. So uh, as always, as always, thanks so much for for listening. If you've read these letters, let me know what you what you think. Uh, send me your comments. You can send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail .com, or you can leave a comment below. Um, although now I, I can't really get the comments on Podbean. I I need to download the Podbean app, but I don't really have a phone that can do much more besides make phone calls or I can't even barely browse the internet. Personally, I'm in China. I don't have a VPN on my phone, so I I don't know. I'm, I'm you know, so it's best to send me an email at this point. Um, next episode, I think if I remember, I have a reader's letter to to do read to you though. Um, a very interesting and, and uh, thoughtful letter I got from a a fan, a listener. So I'll try to remember to to read that letter to you next time. So anyways, again, thanks for listening and I'll see you as we kind of continue to slog through these, these letters. <laughs>